welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Fatima Al-Qadiri. Born in Senegal and raised in Kuwait, Al-Qadiri grew up with an appetite for video games, movies, and cartoons. She became fascinated in particular by the villain's ominous theme music. And this infatuation seeped into her own productions, which combine a strong sense of dread with complex themes. Her debut album, Asiatish, explored the Western perception of Asian cultures in TV and film, while the follow-up Brute took on the inequalities of capitalism itself. In this conversation with Emma Robertson, Alcadiria reflects on her fascination with pop culture, the paradox of good versus evil, and the birth of her alter ego on her latest EP hyperdub, Shanira. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Fatima Al-Qadiri is up next. Actually, I I know that as a kid you had an obsession with villains. Yeah. So I was gonna I was gonna ask a question about maybe you felt like a little bit of a villain at the time. I definitely did. I liked the thing is the villains had the best music. You know, they had the best theme songs. They were I like uh, I'm obsessed with minor keys. So uh, you know, I just from an early age major keys were just they just sounded corny. I hated them. You know. <laughs> So who are your favorite villains growing up? Who had the best music? Oh, man. That's a hard one. I think that the best villains and the best music are two separate things. Because, for instance, J- Jafar is one of my favorite nice villains. Nice choice. You know? <laughs> because he's so queer. You know? like, that's true, actually. He has a really, really, really queer. And that's the thing that I loved about him. I was like, ooh. <laughs> You know, the gaydar is going, is going <laughs> off here. <laughs> but I just liked him. I just liked that he was like so... It's that kind of British actor's voice of a certain... It's like Noel Coward, you know? It's like Cecil Beaton's voice, you know? That he had this kind of affectation that was very thespian in the very old school England that came off to, I think, little kids as... <laughs> having a vibe. <laughs> In Arabic, we say an air. <laughs> so he had an air. And um, I don't know, it just, I, he was so shady. He was such a shady queen. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing that I love him. He was such a shady queen. So he's actually my favorite, uh, like, childhood villain, definitely. He's number one. And I, I don't reference him in Shanira directly, but when I talk about the spirit and the, the alter ego of Shanira, it's like... The, <laughs> that's who you're embodying. That's one of the most... Like, if you think of, of, of an example of Shanira, Jafar is Shanira, you know, like that. Definitely, 100%, <laughs> you know? And it's a very also alluring character. It's an alluring type of evil, you know? but Or, or an alluring type of shady queen. And, uh, but musically, there are also like video game theme songs with villains and it's uh, cartoons. It's hard. I would literally have to like go back and listen to like all the cartoons that I, I grew up with. I can't, I can't think of a specific theme song that is like the one. I don't normally tend to have favorites. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I'm not a, like if you told me who my favorite artist of all time is, I don't have favorites. I, f- I see 
the genius and you know because there's so many different kinds of genius it's like to say that one is greater than another is kind of random but so know? how did you kind of get into this I don't know this love of evil or this love of villains like what the minor keys I just liked the sound of minor keys so much and they all obviously always had minor keys so it was the music more than the yeah, actual yeah. no no of course it was always the music and the fact that they were always tra- you know It was always tra- a tragic ending for them. They were the... Tra- they, yeah. <laughs> you know, they never won. They always <laughs> lost. Very rarely did they win, you know? And that the funny thing is that in the reality, they win. Bad guys win all the time. Mm-hmm. Look who's president. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know what I mean? And so for you in your music, I think that you reflect on this love of villainy quite often. Your 2014 album... Uh, Asia, Asiatish? I don't know how to pronounce this. Sorry. Uh, Asiatish. We're in Germany, girl. <laughs> I know. <it's- laughs> um, so in this album, you've said that it's kind of a reflection of how the West perceives and portrays Asian cultures as villainous. Maybe you can just talk a bit more about that. No, totally. I'm, I'm obsessed with the projection of villainy. I'm obsessed with this, no, this, you know, very black and white polarized notion of the good guys and the bad guys, you know? And it's like uh, how America... And the West always position themselves as good guys and everything in a real historical sense, uh, World War I, World War II, whatever. You know what I mean? Like in terms of colonialism as, as educators and liberators and civilizers and you name it, you know? So I was always interested in this dichotomy and this split of these two forces uh, and how the crimes of the West are always... tidily tucked under the carpet and never subject to any kind of criticism or if it is it's very fleeting you know I don't know I, I wanted to talk about being from a non-western culture growing up in a non-western cu- culture uh, in a West Asian culture and being fed this Chinese uh, let's say culture as a is embodied by by villainous qualities, you know, but also the derogatory stereotyping, you name it, of Chinese characters in Western films, cartoons, whatever, you know. Can you talk about some of the examples, maybe just for people who maybe don't know? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I always feel like Disney is a great one because yeah, it's, it's something that has like, you know, it's a virus. Disney is a virus. It's a disease. It's touched every country on planet Earth. Um, Because it's so high budget, because it's, you know, it's just like it's something that people can relate to, you know. It's an easy, it's an easy reference. But for instance, in um, Lady and the Tramp, you know, the Siamese, the cats. Siamese cats was the very, I think for me, the very first example of a kind of Chinese vil- villain. I mean, know? for me, like when I think back on watching that movie at the time, I did not realize at all. And I took listening to the album and seeing that reference for me to really understand that. It's like subliminal messaging or something. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, that's the thing. This is, this is the thing that I wanted to talk about. It's the subliminal messaging of creating a villain over time. You know, it's like my entire childhood, adolescence and adulthood has been receiving these messages from respected Western sources. China is a villain. China is a villain. China is a villain. Basically, that's the crux, that's the message in a nutshell, you know. And while I was making the record, I saw a cover of um, The Economist, and I can't remember what uh, the writing was, or like what, what, the, what the title of, of the, uh, the magazine was, uh, or the heading of the, the main story, but it was about China, and it was about China as an economic villain, as a bully, <laughs> and it's just like, God damn, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's... It's really, it's everywhere. It's like the culturally, ethnically, economically, you name it, you know? It's like it's always responsible for the worst shit ever, you know? And it's a very complex culture and society. Historically, there's so many, so many things that, you know, were not taught. The opium wars, you know? Like crazy, crazy things like that are just like, oh, yeah, let's just... <laughs> We made a whole nation addicted to opium and had a war about it. Jesus Christ. It's really crazy, you know what I mean? Like, the stuff that the West has, has done and continues to do, you know, through these kind of rogue operations, whatever. And it's just, it's tedious to talk about it. It's very, it, it sounds very conspiratorial, but unfortunately it's all history. It's like, this is, this is a historical fact. This 
happened. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about things that ma- might have happened, <laughs> you know. But the problem is that it's just like always kind of glazed over and brushed aside as kind of like, oh, we had to do this mm-hmm. for, for God knows what reason, you know. But um, because I studied um, also ancient Chinese literature, so I had this access to and love of uh ancient Chinese poetry you know which was which is very very beautiful the sound of it I don't even understand I guess quite a different representation to what normally you're used to I guess no of course so I wanted to take that body of poetry and completely chop it up and put it through this music so what you hear in the record is words and syllables that are out of sync but they're still in ancient Chinese. So modern Mandarin speakers struggle even to understand the original, you know, even without me chopping it up. They'll understand some things, but not everything. But um, I wanted to create this kind of chopped ancient Chinese poetry that was like somehow lost and going through this kind of mechanized or mechanical reality. So the sound is very digital and very cold. Because I think there's a lot of changes happening and, and have been happening in China in the 20th century. It's just like it's it's one of, you know, historically, it's like it's one of the most interesting places. Its contribution to pan-Asian culture is major, major, you know. Like a third of Japan's language is Chinese characters, like things like that. I mean, there is, when I was, I was also studying ancient, China, uh, ancient Japanese um literature and there is a a temple in Kyoto that I visited called the Hall of the Poetry Immortals. And it's specifically this the samurai, Ishikawa Jozan, made this temple in you have to I have to give you the date later because there's only so many dates I can remember. But he created a temple in honor of Chinese poets and he called it the Hall of the poetry immortals. So this is like, you know, there's a great love and respect for Chinese literature and Chinese culture around in different Asian countries. And also, you know, the the word Asian also is another, it's, it's a funny one. I, I definitely struggle with it. That's why I, the thing is that record contains so many things. I was going to say it's like the, the love aspect, but also this other kind of evil aspect. This is, I, I think there's this, I'm interested in generalizations. I'm interested in stereotypes, you know. I'm interested in how they warp perspective and how they inform how people make judgments on them uh, without thinking, you know, how they create a groupthink also and how they dismiss uh, subtleties in culture and subtleties in, in, in ethnicity and language and so on. So how did you try to represent these stereotypes or cliches within the album? I did it in, in however a musician does via abstraction, you know. It's to try to highlight some things, but at the end of the day, the music is an abstraction, you know. I try to fill it with the story, with this narrative, with these concerns, uh, with this love, and with this kind of anxiety about decolonizing the mind. I have spent, and I am still decolonizing, because I went to a British school, so I was taught history from a British empire perspective, perspective, you know, that the empire was fab, it was great, we (laughs) civilized everybody. Oh my God, it was such a nightmare. (laughs) And literally... I've had to decolonize my brain. I'm still in the process. It's a long process, you know. It's 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 an indoctrination, and it takes a long time to remove un-teach those ideas. Yourself. Unteach yourself, mm-hmm. you know. It's a really hardcore. I catch myself all the time because I have been indoctrinated mm-hmm. in the empire, you know. That's why I find it also very disturbing when people accept knighthoods from from the modern, you know, from the British 
monarchy. I'm just like, how? Ew! What the fuck? You know, like commander of the of the of the British yeah. Empire. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, don't accept that shit. <laughs> you know. But so, do you think that this contrast of good and evil that we've been talking about? Do you think that that's necessary for your work or for art in general? I think that there just needs to be more. The problem with the notion of good and evil is that it's very polarizing. There's no room for humanity. You know, like for instance, prisons. I believe in the uh, abolition of prisons. You know, I believe in rehabilitation and education. And I think that there's a lot to be said for for education and rehabilitation. And I think that these ideas basically create enemies. You know, they inhibit friendship. They they're dangerous ideas. There's, I mean, there's definitely some evil people out there. <laughs> Having said that, but this is the thing. I feel like we. You know, there's gray. The gray zone exists. And I think this is this is the thing that a lot of people talk when they talk about ISIS, for instance, you know, or Daesh, as we like to call them, the name, the <laughs> name that they hate. They hate Daesh so much. They love ISIS. ISIS is their official brand name. So don't ever call them that. Call them Daesh, which is like the nasty, like real name, you know. <laughs> so basically, they want the gray zone to disappear. They don't want multicultural living. They don't want people from different ethnic backgrounds and different religions and different genders living next to each other in harmony. That They want the destruction of the gray zone. And I'm all for the gray zone. I'm all for... People are so complex, you know. They're not this monolithic thing. That's the thing. Anytime people ask me about these, you know, very broad questions about Islam, I'm like, dude, Islam is so big. So many billions of people are Muslim. There's so so many different countries. For instance, in Ramadan, I was in, in Sarajevo during Ramadan, and the, there was literally five people in the mosque. Everybody else was just not drinking alcohol. They just drank... At home. <laughs> they, no, they just drank juice at the bar. <laughs> the, 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 that expression of Ramadan is so interesting. I'd never seen it before, you know? But it was like a specific Sarajevan thing. And maybe it's changed now because people change. So, you know, like a country that you've been in 10 years ago, it's like, it's like saying that, you know, what was New York like 10 years ago? It's not the same. Nothing, n- nothing is static, you know? And like you asked me, the the, the question about performers in, in the Arab world, I'm positive the relationship has changed between society and performers. But to me, it always seemed very... A musical performer always just it wasn't the best thing you could do. It's not like being a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> which is the same for, I think, for a lot of Western families, for sure, you know. But if any prestige exists, it's purely a one from a celebrity aspect, you know? But that's new. But still, it's like, uh, you know, what's on paper and what's how people discuss being a musician. It's For me, it's still not great. For me, it's still, it, it's, you're the black sheep of a family, you know? But like I said, that's my experience with it. And I, I, I will never be the mouthpiece or the representation of the Arab world. Hell no. Of course. It's too many countries, <laughs> too many people, massive population. But so this gray zone that you were talking about, is that just as inspiring to you as the evil side or the good side? No, of course. The gray zone is reality. The gray zone is reality. I think good is good. There's, I, I think to say that there's people that are... are that don't have faults, I don't think that exists. I'm, I mean, that's the thing. It's like we're, we we have all these representations of heroes and like whatever, and I just think, no, it's bogus. We're humans. We, we do dumb shit all the time. We learn from it. If you don't learn from it, you're an idiot. You know? <laughs> but you're not evil, I guess. Yeah. But I think the evil aspect of humanity is, I mean, I always reference Dick Cheney as a true villain in the truest sense. I think there's people out there that just like enjoy the pain and suffering of others. Those people scare the shit out of me. You know, they have zero compassion. I think that to me is a definition of evil. Someone who's completely and utterly without compassion and operates on that, you know, and that's how big banks operate. That's how people that are, you know, the financial crisis was definitely, you know, the, the people that were trading derivatives and knew what was going to happen and still made money off of 
the pain and suffering and homelessness of so many people around the world. That is some sick shit, you know? But those are people ultimately without any compassion. And I think that, to me, might be the closest thing to a definition of evil, you know? But still the word itself bothers me. I think that maybe because I studied linguistics, I have an obsession with words, and I see them as being the most powerful, actually, things that... It's a, it's the most powerful form of propaganda is words. Nothing else is more powerful, you know, because people fight with words all the time. Look at um, Kellyanne Conway. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like they use words to deflect, to disturb, to hijack all the time, you know? But so your choice of the word evil in describing Shanira... What what was that like for you? Kind no, of the, the word evil, evil there is playful. <laughs> evil queen? She, she's playful, but she's got some scary moments, you know? She's definitely looking for some young gun at the club, <laughs> you know, to like take home. She's scary, you know? But so what was that experience like for you? I mean, uh, for our listeners who don't know, you're actually on the cover of the album in full Shanira get up. So what was that experience like for you kind of getting to become this evil queen? I mean, it's it's great, you know. I, I definitely feel like embodying an alter ego or a persona is it's fun, you know. It's I really had fun doing it. It was it's it's the most fun, one of the most fun records I've ever made, you know. Um because it was with friends and it was very difficult to make a record, you know. Like I think that the a lo- large number of my audience does not speak Arabic. So to hit them with a <laughs> A record that's all in Arabic is, you know, it's interesting. I listen to to music in, in many different languages and don't even think twice, mm-hmm. you know. I just expect the lyrics to be cute, you know. So is there any subliminal messaging in Shanira? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's definitely like, you know, live your life. If your beauty offends others, fab, you know. One of one of the the lines is I offend you with my beauty and I, I think that's so it's so powerful. Bobo Secret says it on uh, the track Al Kahf. It's a common term used by non-binary people against hegemonic heteronormative people on social media. It's like I offend you with my beauty. It's just like own your beauty, do what you gotta do, be who you need to be you know, and use shade to conquer everything. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, one thing I can say about Arab culture, I think a lot of culture is very shady. My God, Kuwaiti women are the shadiest. Shadiest. Maybe you can talk a bit about the experience of working with uh, the different collaborators on the album. I know that you've said that you don't want to speak for them, but maybe you can talk about the experience that you had meeting them and working with them, recording it. Writing the lyrics. It was just, I met them at a party, you know? It's like, what could be more serendipitous? Um, and I told them that idea, and they were like, yes. So, And we found an engineer. The the, enge- the recording engineer was at the party. So he, he knew, he, we had friends in common, you know? And there was like, yes, we can record at his place. And because I was worried, where am I going to record this? These are very kind of risque lyrics you know and, the and also the like safety part exactly of it. it's like this needs to be recorded in a safe place because all the all the the studios in kuwait are run by bros you know <laughs> like major bros <laughs> so it's a very heteronormative space and i knew it was going to be a huge problem i thought the record wasn't going to happen honestly had i not met this guy uh zahad sultan at that party and he wasn't down like if he wasn't down with it it would have never happened how how it could have, it would have been an instrumental record and it wouldn't have had the same impact you know so it was just like it was definitely meant it was meant to be you know do you feel like this recording of i mean doing something that was a little bit risque as you said do you think that that was an, an empowering experience for the people who you worked with for sure they were laughing hysterically <laughs> between takes like it was so cute. We were crying at the end. Like, it was out of control. <laughs> we just kept pressing stop and, and, and like, laughing into tears and then pressing start again because it was just so funny. Like, I don't... The thing is that a lot of it is grinder chat. So, you know, it's something that you see on the screen and you don't vocalize. So when the words are coming out of your mouth, you realize, like... 
some of it is really hilarious. You know, it's just like for <laughs> can instance, you translate some some of for it instance the very first line of the very first track Shanira is Surtik Gebel Salamik your pick before your greeting <laughs> it's like no pick no ta- no chat <laughs> do you think that music should necessarily be empowering or is it enough that music is just entertaining I mean this record in particular I think is probably pretty empowering for you and for the people that you worked with but in general would you say that that's a I think music can be anything oh my god no it can be anything it can be like happy sad mad bad it can be anything really I like have such a big love of so many different vibes it's whatever you want to li- whatever you want to listen to however you want to feel you know you want to feel like I mean I listen to baroque music all the time <laughs> That's when I really want to unwind. I just get on a Baroque station. <laughs> so I just think it just it's at the end of the day, it's, it's whatever you want it to be. I, I don't know. I don't I don't think that it needs to be anything. Was music empowering for you as a kid? Like when you think back to these experiences you were having listening to gangster rap by yourself? Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, I feel like. I definitely had a lot of traumas as a as a child and as an adolescent so I needed to zone out and I needed like a, a dreamscape to escape to and it was my way of doing that and I think that a lot of kids do that too. So I definitely needed it and I I needed all the different kinds of music that I was listening to as well because they all served different kinds of purposes. Yeah. Like what? daydreaming like uh but also musically I was really uh, that's the thing it's like it it wasn't just I I was also into the construction of it so it's difficult for me to say I was definitely learning while I was listening and being heavily influenced by you know rhythmically sound wise etc so but I feel like what it helped me most with was this I think that a lot of teenagers do that was escaping reality, you know. In an interview of yours, the author writes that you used music to take control of your own life. Yes, because I felt like my con- I, my body was spiraling out of control. I couldn't control it and I was having like re- I almost got expelled from from school because I wasn't going to school because I just I I couldn't I couldn't deal. I was having really bad um really bad psychological problems so i definitely used it as a music therapy in a very very basic sense i know that you also loved video games and movies and soundtracks uh would you say that those relationships gave you strength or power in some way uh maybe an escape from reality as you said any kind of sounds that that kind of created kind of melody and harmony were great you know that that were that i found appealing were soothing for me or made, you know, or stimulants or whatever, like whatever I needed from them. But um, for the video game game stuff, it was different because it was, it gave me agency, you know. I, I was the ruler of the world. So that music was almost like, a, I want to say drug-like because the feeling of being the, the, the ruler of the world or, or, or taking control was so important and it was very repetitive and very loopy. So it kind of acted as a kind of an audio sedative of some kind, you know, on this journey of playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like for you then playing Desert Strike after having lived through the Gulf War? Uh, and then kind of having this subversion of reality in the game. Uh, it was horrible, and it didn't last very long, because I literally played, I, I was, as soon as I turned it on, it was like a Hollywood movie, you know, like The Goonies or Peter Pan. I just felt like that. I was like, I, I felt like I was being plugged into an alternate universe, you know, that was very disturbing. As soon as I finished watching the very long, epic intro, which contained a, a torture scene, the rest of the game was silent and i think i lasted one hour yeah. but i kept but i kept the cartridge of course so i but i never played it again i was like fuck this game you know you wrote a a really nice essay i think it was quite recently about the experience of listening to an enigma cassette in the car while your cousin drove you and your family out of kuwait after it was liberated in the 1990s can you Maybe just briefly explain what that journey was like for you. What what were you seeing? Uh, what was the music like? What was that whole experience like for you? 
Um, it was uh, 1991, but um, yeah, my cousin joined the U.S. military because uh, of the unique situation of Kuwaiti students, male Kuwaiti students in the U.S., the U.S. military, allowed any Kuwaiti male student studying to join the military if, if they wanted to, and he did. Um, he was like 18, 19, he was young. He drove us from Kuwait to Bahrain, which is like a six-hour drive. And, of course, the the oil fires were still raging. There was still uh, smoke. And especially if you're, if you're driving, like, through the border, you'd that, that's, the, like, the epicenter of what you were seeing very up close. Meanwhile, when I was in the, let's say, the city area, um, it was, you could only see the 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 black sky the black morning sky which was like an illuminated dark sky i mean he just started he just played this cassette the whole journey six hours i don't know how many times (laughs) but i mean i had never heard gregorian chant before and i was just because they sampled so much gregorian chant in that record i was transfixed and it just gave me a huge massive love of all choral devotional music, but a particularly a great love. I, I mean, I immediately after, I think, as soon as I could get into a, a record store, I bought a Gregorian chant CD, which I still have, <laughs> which I sampled in the opening of uh, this track, Vatican Vibes. So uh, it's very meaningful for me. But anyway, riding through that terrain, I mean, it was just, you know, I, I definitely describe it as seeing an apocalypse or an, uh, like an, a, an alien vision, you know. And it really affected me very, 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 very much. And I think that having seen that and having witnessed the complete destruction of your homeland like raised to the ground, burnt to a crisp, definitely leaves some kind of feeling in your mind. And that's why I'm actually very drawn towards sci-fi. Because I feel like I witnessed, I lived through a sci-fi movie, and I kind of relate to this kind of destructive imagery, you know. And also, it's interesting because the older Japanese generation that was uh, that were like kids during, let's say, um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, made anime. For instance, Akira, the kind of references, kind of end of the world, which still ru- kind of runs through Japanese anime in very subtle forms, you know this obsession with the apocalypse, because they witnessed it too. And from a different perspective, but still, I mean, there are civilians, you know. Civilians are civilians. And the atomic bombs, I mean, it was pretty pretty crazy, um, to say the least. Uh, but that imagery that I saw in Akira really, it really touched me, and I'm very moved by these kinds of images, but... You know, it's I don't know. It's real. That's the thing. That's why I make music. It's really difficult to talk about it in words. You know, that kind of vision. It's a vision. You know, was that experience driving out of Kuwait, listening to this music? Was that also empowering for you in some way? I don't know if it was empowering. I think for me, it was. It was the most accurate soundtrack to what was happening. You know, like this kind of devotional music, kind of was very calming, but was so epic so it was like it was like i was watching a movie that had a great soundtrack but it was real (laughs) you know that's the thing about it it was just like it was so crazy it was such a crazy coincidence that of any you know he could have been playing michael jackson he could have been you know what i'm saying like he could have been playing anything but he had that enigma tape and it was really made all the difference and so for me like i still use i think choir like a uh, digital choir sound is one of my most um, defining aspects of my music. You know, that makes this track really mine because I use digital choir sounds like on almost everything mm-hmm. that I do, you know. And I think that that journey played a very large part 
in, in that kind of decision to be obsessed with the with the human voice, you know. You once said that since then you've spent your whole life consciously and unconsciously writing an internal soundtrack for that journey. No, for sure. For not just for the journey, but for for every as you know, when I think about the day-to-day things that were happening, the things that I saw, it just it's so and I was I was young, I was nine years old, it just seems unbelievable you know it seems so out of this world as if I'm making it up you know it's just like how also how Kuwait rebuilt itself because it was the whole thing was so crazy because it was a wealthy nation the destruction of it was so swift and then the rebuilding of it was let's say faster than normal but still there's still ruins you know, from the time I just walked through this incredible social housing complex in Kuwait City called Suwabur. The government evicted everybody out of it a year ago um, because there's serious um, renovation issue. I mean, it's just not safe to live in anymore there. And people didn't want to leave. And I walked through it three times with my friends in the last month because it felt like it looked like something from the war, you know? And, I mean, obviously it existed, and people were living there during uh, the invasion. And it was just the spookiest... It just looks like a set for Blade Runner, you know? Like, it's crazy. That's the thing. There's things in Kuwait still to this day that just, like, they look so alien. They look like ruins from Atlantis, you know? It's like, what is this doing here? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And behind it is this crazy, glitzy mall with, like, I don't know, Gucci stores or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, like, there's so many layers of reality, let's say, you know, that is hard sometimes it's hard for me to to process you know and i feel like i'm still processing what happened mm. to kuwait you know because one day it was cute the next day <laughs> there was an invasion you know and it's just like that's the thing it's it's like one of those zombie apocalypse movies changes like changes in a day <laughs> changes in a day like suddenly it's like i mean I always tell people, like, can you ima- imagine the invasion of America? Or can you imagine, like, you know, I mean, the closest, like, there was an aerial bombing in in, in London during World War Two. I, I feel like that's the closest thing, but still, World War Two was different, you know? It was just a completely different, each war is different, obviously, you know? And there's uh, some crazy wars going on right now that have been stretching for God knows how many years. So it's by no means unique but it was just for me I still I I, I still can't get over it and unique to you yeah (laughs) (laughs) I still can't get over can't get over it and it's definitely it's something that still haunts me you know I think that I'm I'm just haunted by it as you mentioned you're quite conceptual with your albums um, can you explain a bit about how these stories come to fruition in your head? I mean, I know that you love storytelling. So does it start with an idea? You wake up in the morning and the idea is there? or No, I mean, so I come from a storytelling family. Like my mom's a writer. My dad's a writer. Her grandma loved to tell stories to like all the kids on the block she would gather them do a little plays for them so there's like a little bit of a storytelling element in the family and I was very obsessed with Shahrazad the character of Shahrazad you know telling stories to stay alive Uh, and I think that there's definitely an aspect of that in me like just from an existential point of view like I feel like I need to fill my life with with narrative for whatever reason but i because i see there's so much there's so many stories to tell we keep getting the same goddamn story the heroic white straight boy taking on all the it's like god damn there are so many you know what i'm saying every time i see a movie i just want to like smash the screen because <laughs> it's just like there's so many goddamn stories and they're not being told you know so how do you ensure that the sounds that you're creating match the story that you want to tell i mean does it does it matter to you if i think the sounds match the story or is it whether or not it makes sense to you that's important no i don't i don't take my audience into consideration on that level for me at the end of the day the creation of all these records 
as a therapy for myself, first and foremost. Like you said, I'm, I'm still making a soundtrack for that vision, you know? Like, I, I, all these exercises are for my own pleasure, my own satisfaction, <laughs> and my own relief from demons that haunt me, you know? I'm glad if anybody listens to it, I'm glad if people like it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, all, it's a personal journey. We were talking about the power of words earlier. Um, I guess I'm just wondering for an album like Brute, for example, which was about police brutality. I mean, there I, I think that it's quite important for the message to be understood clearly. I mean, Brute, parts of it is about police brutality, but it's really about democracy. And it's about my relationship with democracy. Democracy is this holy grail that was never fully realized in any country. That's what the story of Brute. And how, be, and how democracy in the West is controlled by capital, ultimately. And police are there to protect capital and to protect the wealthy, etc. And, and it's about free speech and how free speech exists for some and doesn't exist for others, like we all know. So it's about, it's, again, it's about all these very, very complex subjects. But I mean, you know. fil- like filtered through you, I guess, I think. This may be obvious, but I guess the common thread is that it's your perception. It's my perception. It's my perception coming from a non-Western country. My father was obsessed with democracy. He was obsessed with democracy. It's like the Holy Grail. He was, you know, he just... And then when I went to the States, I was like, damn, this really doesn't exist, actually. Where does it exist, you know? Where does democracy really, really exist? You know, because unfortunately... I think that the problem is that democracy and this version of capitalism, I don't know if there's a benign version of cat- capitalism. I don't, think, I don't think so. I would beg to differ, you know? I don't have an alternative because that's not my job. <laughs> I think that's somebody else's job, an economist's job, to come up with an alternative to capitalism. But I think that capitalism and democracy, they can't exist together, you know? Democracy can never be real with capitalism. Because capitalism will always rein in free speech and will rein in freedom of assembly and will rein in welfare and you name it, you know. So it's basically about that. It's it's about it's about police as a kind of enforcers of 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 this kind of power, you know, of capitalism's power ultimately. And it's not it's not about it's about the decades of propaganda of the West spreading the idea of democracy around the world is, yes, you can be just like us, what, like thrown in jail for, for marching? <laughs> like, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just like people get thrown in jail for marching all over the world, you know? It's like not unique to any country. It's just done with a de- different degree of brutality, you know? Called different things as well. Called different things. And it's also, it's, it's also about America's unique relationship because it is this kind of firebrand of democracy around the world brand brand is very important um and has this kind of pr built in via the constitution but it's all words it's not real that's what i wanted to get at with this record you know it's not police brutality is one element of a very big complicated subject you know but so you wouldn't say that your music or your narratives are for the most part grounded in reality or memory in some way? Yes, they're they're about memory and they're about forgotten memories, you know? The thing is with history, I'm obsessed with history. If I can tell. <laughs> no, right? Like this is what all my records are about. They're about some kind of historical element that is overlooked, you know? For instance, the the political amnesia in the states and in the west you know, like every time, like, for instance, right now, people are like, oh, yeah, George W. Bush was great. It's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, it's like, if that administration hadn't existed, you think Trump would exist? No way. No way in hell. They did so, the Patriot Act, come on, like, get real. Like, this is the thing, like, people really, like, Trump really rehabilitated W's reputation. Yeah, definitely. I think right? it plays tricks on your memory. Yeah, it play, but this is what I'm saying. It's like, I feel like, why are we slaves to the cycle of for- forgetfulness? Like, I just feel like humans 
come on please stop forgetting <laughs> stop forgetting please remember you know so what is it like for you these days working with a label like hyperdub where you seem to be kind of given free reign to do whatever you want with your music I mean, that's the beauty of working with them. They're really the most respectful label I have ever come across in my entire life. Really, like, just no holes barred, do whatever you do. We'll tell you if we can afford this project or not, you know? Like, they're just so, so supportive and so chill. No drama, no bullshit. Like, fab, you know? And obviously, Steve, um, Code 9, is just like, He's an academic, which is so rare, so he gets everything. Like, and he's also just like a cool person and a sweet person and kind and supportive and just like, I don't have enough good words to say about him. It's just like, you know, like, they're just amazing. They're really, really amazing. I, I think it's the, the, the biggest problem in the music industry is resources, you know? Once you go bigger, then you're dealing with some... Going bigger. No, you just keep... Dealing with some serious accountants, you know, and it's all about the money. It's like, you didn't sell enough records. And I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> but this is the problem. I think that the music industry is, I always tell people it's the only industry that I can think of where everybody's work is stolen. And the like the live music industry is one thing, and the recorded music industry is another thing. And the recorded, recorded music industry is fucked like so fucked like i always tell people steal don't stream steal it i want you to steal my download my music now off whatever torrent BitTorrent crap that you can find don't stream it take it own it you know because i don't want those assholes do you think i want decimal point money no artist wants decimal point money you know jesus christ why are these people getting rich and i get decimal point money hell no steal Deal. <laughs> <laughs> so is it fair to say that there is nothing that's going to be off limits for you in terms of inspirations or where you get your influences from? Or? No, of course there's limits. Oh hell yeah, there's limits. <laughs> like you have to be res- you have to be respectful. Whenever you, this is the thing with whatever you work with, and this is why I always I always say, for instance, uh, I got a couple very interesting let's say comments while uh, when I released Asiatish uh, that it was uh, Orientalist, and I was like damn how did how did you come to that conclusion this is a fucking anti-orientalism record (laughs) you know but this people can be very literal uh unfortunately but yeah whatever you do when you're working with subjects that are not part of your own culture and even when you're working with subjects that are part of your own culture you have to be respectful you have to you know that's why i make my intent as clear as I can even when I'm dealing with really complex subjects because I, I just I can't you know I, I, I don't want to deal with with simple ideas because they don't interest me so much I think that the, the, the things that I want to talk about are very very unfortunately very complex and and I'm using the most abstract form of uh expression to deal with them which is hilarious and a problem <laughs> so i like i almost wish i was born a writer like it's like god damn could i have not written them? and i'm not a good writer i suck at writing <laughs> so it's definitely like ah i wish i was a writer but no i'm a musician what can i do you know <laughs> it's much easier when you can read it in words uh, but unfortunately i my words are nowhere near good enough to explain and i just i what I can do is put it in, into music. And I think music tell, can tell a story. I really think it can, you know? It does have narrative built into it, and you can imagine, you can imagine society, society's problems in music. I really think, I, I mean, I think that I can.